0: Hey, are you still ambivalent about money? Well, hey, it seems a lot of people are. Stick around. We'll talk about that and more. Do you love your work? Do you think it's possible? Well, you're about to find out. It's time for 48 Days to the Work You Love with Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Whether you need a professional tune-up or a work overhaul, this is the program for you. Now, here's your host, Dan Miller. Hey, thanks for joining us today. This is the 48 Days Radio Show, where each week we take about 48 minutes to blast through questions, real-life questions that you and a whole lot of other people ask. We'll be talking about a whole lot of interesting things today, always interesting questions here on the show. Our business partner today is Gusto be telling you a little bit more about them here in just a minute. But here are some of the questions we're going to be looking at today. Well, I I kind of gave a synopsis to a very long input, but essentially somebody says, I have work that matters, more money, and no more panic attacks. So we'll hear about his journey into that progression that I just described there. And somebody says, I want to start my own business, but my credit is shot. Well, what do you do there? I want to help people, but I also want to make money. I feel as if the existence of the rich necessitates the existence of the poor. Whoa. Always deep, meaningful questions. Thanks for submitting those. If you got a question, you can shoot it in to me at askdan at 48days.com. Well, our quotation for today is from John Ruskin, who said, When love and skill work together, expect a masterpiece. So what do you think? What are you using in your work? Is it just skill, talent, need for a paycheck, or does it really include your work, your love as well? So the call to action is just a question. Are you adding love to the work you do? Now I'm going to end today, if we get to it with the famous quotation by Kahil Gibran, where he talks about love is really you know, work is love made visible. So we'll talk about that. Well, our business partner today is Gusto. Now we know payroll and benefits are difficult, especially for small business. I mean, you don't have to, the time to be an expert in things like taxes and regulations. And there's a lot of payroll providers out there that just don't give you really the tools you need as just maybe a a solopreneur somebody that just has two or three employees, or even if you have 10 or 15, it's just tough to figure all that stuff out. Well, gusto is making payrolls, benefits and human resource easy for small businesses. Modern technology does the heavy lifting. So it's easy to get things right. Now you can check them out. You can just Google gusto if you want to see what people are saying about them, but you're going to find that they're being rated as the best payroll system for small businesses All the customers, you know, nine out of 10 users say Gusto is easier to use than other payroll solutions they tried prior to that. Now, most small businesses can't justify having a human resource expert. I mean, even my friend Dave Ramsey, I remember that he grew his employee numbers to about 45 people before they brought on a full-time human resource director. But in the lower numbers it just doesn't make sense but you still have to have the figures right so you don't get into trouble with the state and the, and the IRS nationally when you're doing your taxes you want to stay on track well gusto helps make it easy for you well here's what you want you to do just check it out they have a exclusive limited time offer for our 48 days listeners you can sign up today get 3 months free of running your payroll just go to gusto.com slash 48 days. Again, gusto.com slash 48 days. Well, let's talk about some good news. Lots of good news, things happening out there. Here's an 18 year old driver went 225 miles to make a pizza delivery after the store closed. Now here's how this kind of unfolded. And this is about steve's pizza place in battle creek michigan it's known far and wide there's an 18 year old pizzeria worker who's been praised for going above and beyond the call of duty after he broke the restaurant's takeout rule i mean they don't do delivery but he delivered a pizza to a family three and a half hours away now the deal is there was a couple julie and rich morgan they were reminiscing about the wonderful pizza they used to enjoy at steve's pizza in battle creek michigan but it's been about 25 years since a couple lived in that city what they were going to do though they decided they were going to drive down there to celebrate their anniversary drive down there and enjoy the pizza but what happened is right before this planned vacation rich got a diagnosis of cancer and ended up in hospice was deteriorating really quickly well So obviously they weren't going to go on this three and a half hour trip to go get their favorite pizza. But Julie, Julie's dad called the pizza place and just told him and said, golly, if you could just send him a text or just write him a note, a letter, it'd it'd really mean a lot to him. Well, after listening to what was going on, this young worker decided immediately what he was going to do. So he asked what kind of pizzas the couple liked. Julie's father emphasized, now they lived in Indianapolis, that's 225 miles away from Battle Creek. Well, despite the restaurant maintaining their takeout only rule, Schaefer waved away the man's protest, said he would be delivering two pepperoni pizzas to the couple's house after he closed the store for the night. True to his word, he drove three and a half hours till he finally reached the Morgans' house. So the wife says, while Rich and I slept at 2.30 a.m., Dalton rolled into our driveway, left the car running, delivered two extra special pizzas to my waiting family. He told them we were in his prayers and offered to help in any way he could. Uh, She said my dad offered to put him up in a hotel, but he refused, immediately left for the return trip home. Again, this is at 2.30 in the morning because he had to work the next day. Well, great story great just somebody just taking the initiative to make a special occasion for somebody not that he was looking for a raise or promotion or just because it was the right thing to do love those stories well here's another one a surgeon finds fame when his first tweet is about stitching up a little boy's teddy bear before an operation dr daniel mcneely has only published one tweet in his entire life and it's already earned him internet fame for the sweetest reason so he posted pictures of himself performing surgery on a little boy's teddy bear before the youngster was put to sleep for an operation. Eight-year-old Jackson McKee was undergoing surgery, have a cyst removed from his brain. And Dr. McNeely has been taking care of Jackson since he was an infant. So when he brought in, they talked and the little boy asked the doctor if he could treat his toy because there was an arm tear, a small tear in the teddy's arm. So the, the doctor had his team bring in a separate tray of utensils, tools and all of that and he worked on the little boy's teddy bear putting his mind at ease about his little teddy bear being okay before they put him to sleep for this very special operation that he was going to have and again the doctor had the nurses took some pictures they put that up and it was one of those very cool things that has gotten a whole lot of attention out there on the internet now this is the cool story and it certainly has to do with the work here's the world's oldest barber still masterfully cutting hair at 107 years old 107 anthony mancinelli maybe a staggering 107 years old but he's still working full-time as a barber the same way he's been doing it for the last 96 years Can you imagine having the same job or doing the same work for 96 years? I mean, obviously, that's not something that most people accomplish. But Anthony dropped out of high school to become a full-time barber at the tender age of 11. He was 11 years old and became a barber. When he turned 96, Guinness World Records named him the world's oldest barber. Now, over 10 years later, he's still going strong. He says he, you know, never drank or smoked very heavily. He says he doesn't exercise much, but he just enjoys his work. So he, he says he, he, outlasts a whole lot of his younger friends by standing on his feet for eight hours a day. I watched a little video with this guy and he works five days a week, eight hours a day. And it's just like, why wouldn't I do this? You know, why would I retire? Why wouldn't I do? This? He's 107 years old. Well, he says, I only go to the doctor because people tell me to, but even, even my doctor can't understand it. I tell him I have no aches, no pains, no nothing. Nothing hurts me. Well, his customers and co-workers have constantly expressed their adoration for the 107-year-old gentleman, along with tourists and celebrities who flocked to the Fantastic Cuts Salon in New Windsor, New York. Now, that's about, I think it's about an hour and a half north of New York City but people come there from all over the world to get a haircut from the world's oldest barber. This is funny. He, he cuts his son's hair. His son, Bob is 81 years old (laughs) And, and he doesn't understand how his dad keeps going. But here's a guy 81 years old and his dad is his barber. Well, Anthony says he doesn't plan on retiring anytime soon either. So he will continue to serve as an example of living strong in the golden years. I'll try to keep track of this guy. I mean, has had the same kind of work he's been doing for 96 years. Golly, let's shoot for 100, 100 years of doing the same work. That'd be, that'd be pretty cool. But he's 107 years old, which certainly isn't very common. But he certainly looks spry. I mean, you would not guess he was that old looking at the video. Well, let's jump into some questions here. Questions, comments, success stories. Got a whole bunch of things that have uh, flowed in here this week. Uh, John says, my wife and I have always dreamed of moving to the mountains, being minutes away from places to go hiking and camping. After reading your book, I decided to take action in our dream. I applied for a job in a beautiful town in the middle of the mountains. We increased our income. My wife is able to stay home with our kids. And every day we were able to go hiking at some of our favorite places on earth. God is so good. and We're living our dream. Thanks for all you do, John. Well, thanks for those notes. I love getting those. Got more of them here that I'll get to in a little bit, but where people have taken action. I mean, that's the deal. That's the delineator. As you hear these stories from people, people who have taken action, it's not being lucky or in the right place at the right time or having the right degrees or having the right intelligence, Nah, those things are small components, but the main thing is to have a clear plan and then take massive action. Hey, speaking of which, I want to mention too, we got our cruise coming up, the Acres of Diamonds Cruise. I'm so excited about that. Joanne and I have been talking about it. We've been looking at the growing list of people who are going to be uh, cruising with us that week, leaving in April, April 27th, 2019. Uh, We'll be out a week and we're looking for people who have stories about their Acres of Diamonds, how they found opportunity and took action and brought it to life but check out all the things there you can get a, a copy a free copy of the little book acres of diamonds i've updated it put a new forward in there but you can get a free copy of that and it tells a story about the gentleman who went around went off looking for his acres of diamonds and ended up that it was right under his nose he just didn't recognize it but just go to 48days.com slash cruise and you'll Get all the details there would love to see you join us well this comes from sam who says dan i've been listening this is quite uh quite lengthy he talks about uh, the fact that he's been listening to the podcast for eight years or so he said uh, he's had other questions answered and uh, he tried a little business of his own bacon making bread a couple years ago um, that didn't work he was working 17 hours a day two hours for sleep didn't make any money left that went back to his mental health career. He's a licensed uh, social worker and went back, got an extra degree. So he passed another licensing exam. And then in 2016, got a job that he desperately needed. Last year I finally made, so last year would be 2017. Then I finally made over $60,000 a year. So here I was last year making 63,000 working part-time on my private practice. And he stated, started, Well, he started working with a friend. Here's where it gets kind of interesting. Even though he was working as a social worker and making more money than he ever had made, he was having panic attacks because the work was really oppressive, as a lot of you in mental health care recognize that it is. And he stayed exhausted and had multiple trips to urgent care. He said, by August, I was spending one day a week at the ER or the urgent care because of panic attacks. So what he did, he moved into having his own clients. Now, this was intimidating for Samuel and his wife, but moved into having his own clients. And at this point, he's got that where he is now working 20 hours a week and making as much money as he was making full time. Also, he has more time to spend with the family. It's much more relaxed. The panic attacks quit totally about three weeks after he went out on his own. And so anyway, Samuel says, thanks to you, your audience for the guidance and encouragement. Uh, even though we never have really spoken, your podcast motivated me, gave me the knowledge I couldn't find anywhere else. Thank you, Dan. Well, thanks for your note, Samuel, and for that story. Keep moving ahead. Boy, again, if, if work is distressing, you know, if work is frustrating, yeah, we're going to see physical manifestations of that going to see things that show up that are inexplainable and what, how you feel and how your body is responding. Well, Art says, hello, Dan. I recently read 48 days, no more Mondays, great books like you. I'm a car guy. I work as an ASE certified technician for six plus years. Then I opened up a used car lot, which led to a bankruptcy. Have to admit, Fixing cars and selling them are completely different. All right. Currently, I work for the state and only earn $40,000 a year. I feel like my time is worth way more than that. I'd like to open my own repair shop as those are my skills of expertise and I enjoy the work, but I don't know where to start as my credit is shot from my previous endeavor and I have no savings. Please help. All right. Now, Art, man, I love what you're talking about and you want to work on cars. You have the ability to do that. Golly, rock and roll. What an opportunity there. I mean I love our mechanics the guys that know how to open the hood and get in there and do things. I mean I used to do a lot of stuff. I mean I've always enjoyed working on cars, you know, built my first car and I've always enjoyed doing you know pretty major things. These days though with the computerization, I mean you have to have equipment, wow, that uh, goes beyond what we used to do when we just pop the hood open and jump in there and pull the distributor or replace the spark plugs a little more complicated these days but you can do that you can get involved now here's here's kind of implied in your question you'd like to open your own repair shop but you your credit is shot you don't have to have a fancy four stall garage down the street you know, with all the things that go along with that, the lifts and everything. Nah, start with what you've got. And if your credit is shot, don't try to work the system and end up in debt and having that over your head right away. Start with what you've got. Now you mentioned that you read No More Mondays. In No More Mondays, if you recall in chapter eight, I talk about Aaron Stokes, who was my neighbor. Now he's, he's moved, sold his beautiful home that they built. But um, he was a neighbor of mine out here in rural Tennessee, dropped out of school after the eighth grade, never got a high school diploma. And he was you know, angry about no opportunity. But in asking, you know, what could I do? He realized he was pretty good as a mechanic. Working on his own car was almost a necessity, but he realized he really enjoyed doing that. So he started working on Sobs and Volvos. Now we live in Williamson County, you know, just south of Nashville, Tennessee. And Aaron told me that there are more Volvos per capita in our county than any other county in the United States. So he started focusing on Volvos. Well, he began working out of an old deserted barn right on their property, which adjoins mine here out in the country. And so he started working there. The the first year, he did $65,000 worth of mechanical work. The next year, he did $120,000. Now, at that point, there was quite a bit of traffic in and out of that old barn. So he rented a warehouse nearby in Franklin. His first year there, he did $640,000 in business. Two years later, he did $1.2 million. Now, what I just told you there, those figures are a couple years old. I need to get an update from Aaron. I mean, he is rocking it. I mean, his uh, eurofix is the name of his company and he now has I, th- I think it's four different locations and not only do they do massive volume of work on import cars but he also has car sales at all those locations as well so he's really just grown but here's the deal he started out God, i've got it here somewhere he started out with a 19 dollars floor jack from walmart and a plastic toolbox with $60 worth of tools. That's what he started with. He didn't have the credit to go open up a fancy shop somewhere. So he started with what he had and then plowed the profits back in. Golly, I encourage you to do that, Art, with what you want to do. I mean, follow your heart, but don't think that there's an obstacle or a closed door because your credit is shot. Start with what you've got. Sometimes it's an advantage to not be able to go down and borrow a lot of money. I see too many people that run down to the the bank and borrow money or small business administration. You know, they get a $250,000 loan and then they go out and they, you know, buy a new Volvo to drive and, you know, go on vacation. And all of a sudden the money's gone. They still owe the money. They didn't really use it as a business investment and they really didn't need to, you know, grow the business. I uh, had had a couple guys that I worked with, a couple of years ago, and they started a commercial cleaning business. Now, again, what do you need? I mean, you don't need fancy offices. You don't need, you know, you, you just start doing, doing the cleaning. And as you have the work, then you bring on people to actually do the work. Well, they did exactly what I just described. They got a big fancy SBA loan. Both of them leased new cars. So they had brand new company cars they were driving. They leased office space just doing commercial clean. It's not like people are going to come see you. They didn't need it. They blew through a whole lot of money, ended up in big, big trouble financially because they realized they could go out and sell the work, but then they had to get people, employ people to come do the work. That was a challenge for them. They hadn't thought through the business, but if they would have started with just what they had rather than bootstrap the business, rather than having the debt, they would have been able to survive. Well, this one says, take action on a dream. Uh, This comes from Rick, who says, um, I took action on a dream by accepting a request to coach a man in his mid-20s about how to plan for his future. He feels a bit overwhelmed with how to move forward and succeed. I've been blessed and mostly debt-free and crossed the $1 net worth threshold earlier this year, thanks to Dave Ramsey's teaching that my wife and I have followed for the last seven years. I dream of being a coach, but don't feel I will earn as much as I am currently earning at a job I greatly enjoy. So to make this transition over the next eight years, I'm building a rental property portfolio so that I can coach and not have to charge very much. I really want to help those who are motivated, but don't have or make very much money. And thanks for all you do, Rick. This is a challenging setup where you are drawn to doing something that you consider more humanitarian, altruistic or ministry service. I mean, that's fine. But when you say that's what you want to do, but you know, you're not going to make a lot of money there. I cringe a little at seeing that as a black and white issue. You can make a whole lot of money coaching if you want to. Now, certainly, you know, it's pretty, um, pretty common knowledge. The things that I do, I am a coach primarily. That's still primarily what I'm known as, but in order to allow people to experience the principles that lead to the stories that you hear about on here. Week after week, I've written books. We have course, online courses. We have events. People come to, I speak, you know, I have online community, the 48 days equals community. I have my personal mastermind. We have a program called coaching mastery. Those are all extensions of my coaching, but those are things that in combination create significant income. So you can do that. I mean, you can set as a benchmark any kind of income that you want and have coaching be your primary focus if you really want to do that. Now, with what you're describing, if you want to just do it as a ministry, then I would encourage you to dedicate 10 to 15 hours a week to doing that. But don't move your major time commitment to doing that if you know you really have the ability to make a whole lot more money doing other things. You'll end up resenting it. So keep it as a portion of what you do, but don't move your major time commitment to doing that. Now, if you're rocking and rolling in real estate, I mean, that's cool. You know, if you get things where you're creating a passive income where you don't need to be actively involved in the business anymore, and that gives you the freedom to do whatever you want with your time, then sure, you could do that. But don't. For, so there's a couple problems with the way that you present this. You, you present it as kind of the acknowledgement that, you know, you can't make a lot of money coaching. Well, sure you can. So remove that barrier. And if you really want to move into coaching and make a lot of money with it, just be clear, be very intentional about what you're going to do. And you certainly can do that. But with what you're describing, I would encourage you just keep the coaching that you want to do more as a ministry and devote 10 to 15 hours a week doing that, not more. Phil says, I'm gonna just blast through a couple of short ones here. Phil says, at what point do I need to register as a business before I get speaking engagements and start selling? Or can I do it once I am in the process? Well, registering as a business is just uh I mean, it's something you do. A lot of it, the reason you do it is for your own headspace. Registering as a business makes you feel more professional. And it kind of conveys that to other people as well. If you have a business license and if you do that, then you can go to the bank and set up a separate account. I mean, most banks require that you have a business license in order to set up a separate business account. And in doing that, then again, it helps you keep the money separate. So it's not just blended with your personal money. So there are advantages to registering right away. You don't have to do that. You can speak and coach and teach and write and whatever—all those things we talk about—you can do that for two years, you know. And and all of a sudden, you're making fifty thousand dollars doing that. Yeah, you know, then I would encourage you to look at getting a license. So it's not like something you have to do right at the very beginning. But the other thing is, it's not complicated to do right at the beginning. I mean, to register as a business, go down to your county clerk's office is where it's normally done. Like here in Tennessee, go down to the county clerk's office. You pay twenty dollars and you're registered as a business. That gives you your business license. Now that puts in place some other things as well. It'll put you on the map kind of as a business. So there may be a a small occupational tax in your county, other kind of things depending on where you live. But I encourage you to go ahead and do that just because of what it does to help you frame what you're doing as a real business rather than just this little sideline thing. Mona says, Dan, I'm looking for new opportunities in order to get to a career I love. I'm still working on becoming a published author. I love to write, but my current profession is drowning me. I'm a teacher and I work 60 to 80 hours a week just to stay on top of everything. Being a perfectionist doesn't help. I want out I've read your books, 48 Days, No More Dreaded Mondays. I joined the 48 Days Eagles community to connect with and find out how to live my passion. I'm not sure I've fully succeeded in that yet, although I did self-publish a poetry collection on Amazon.com. However, because I'm disgruntled and unhappy at my current job, I did come across a position I would love to try, and that may give me more downtime and a chance to really write. It's an instructor position at a college level, but part-time. It would have to be better than what I'm going through now, and I'm afraid I'm not brave enough to step out and do more yet with my writing career. So I guess my long-winded question is if I quit midterm in my teaching job to take a position at the college, should I worry about the, the black mark I'll have against my name in the teaching community? I don't like being thought of badly, but I do want to break away from a job that's leaving me without time for a life outside of work and just plain miserable. Thanks for all you do. I'd love some direction if they're ready. There books or resources that may help me move forward. I'd love to hear about them. Thanks, Mona. Well, with what you're doing, I mean, for one thing, you know, we're we're here, golly, this is October. So a school year is going to run probably through May. So we got what? October, November, December, January, February, March. Well, you get about seven months. That's a significant period of time. At the same time, you know, that go by in a blink of an eye. If you're concerned about that, leaving a black mark on your record I means certainly you could you could finish that out. But frankly, if you're ready to move into something else, a black mark on your teaching record probably isn't very meaningful. What you're implying is you want to keep the door open in case other things don't work out so you can go back. And if that's enough of a concern, you know, just start the clock, but just commit to going through the end of this school term. When you talk about writing as the thing that you want to do, you hear me talk about that a lot. There's a whole lot of people in the the 48 Days Eagles community who want to write, evidenced by the book Time to Fly that was so beautifully put together by Jennifer Harshman and James Woosley, where they had people submit little short devotionals And what we thought was going to be a little book of 48 of those, that was our original goal, turned into they had to eliminate tons of them to make it a book with only 365. So there's one for every single day, time to fly. Now, So there's a whole lot of people represented who have written something that is now in that published book, which is really cool. So there's a whole lot of people who would love to have their writing be more of their focus and more of the income generation for what they do. Now, can that happen? Yes. Is it easy to make that happen with writing? No. I mean, there's a whole lot of people out there, even those with their name on the front cover of a published book who aren't going to make a whole lot of money I mean, we know most authors never make more than forty thousand dollars a year. And really the ones that make that from a book where they get that in advances and royalties, that's very, very rare for somebody to do that. The people who make money with their writing are leveraging it by doing other things. So they're, you know, doing ebooks that can be sold, they're putting together courses. They are speaking, they may be doing live events around the content of what their writing focus is, but they're doing all those things that leverage that writing beyond, I'm gonna be speaking at a conference. Uh, well, it's a you know big conference for writers. And I'm going to use a Venn diagram where I show a book in the center of that Venn diagram. And I show financial projections and every component of the Venn diagram. So there are seven sections in addition to that center section where I show the book, with the book, I show zero projections. So I'm projecting zero income that comes from people buying it on Amazon or what you get from your publisher. Now, this kind of dis- dismays authors frequently, but it's a realistic model because what I'm telling people and what I'm going to show at this conference is if you take the message that you have in your book and you leverage that into other things like a membership site or a mastermind or live events that you do or speaking that you do or other ancillary products or turn it into a course or seminar. I mean, you can do all those things and you can make a million bucks a year, but it's not directly from your writing. So if you can get that model up and running yeah, you can more than replicate the money you were making teaching at university. You can go way beyond that, but you have to be really clear about where money comes from as a result of your writing. Now, what you're talking about, you know, where you take a position that's just a part-time position to give you more time to write. That's a very legitimate move. I mean, I've had Anna Powers on here and she's very active in the 40 Days Eagles community. She's a young attorney who wanted to build her coaching business, but the demands of being an attorney in a big legal firm are just pretty overwhelming. So again, you know, they could easily expect 78 hours a week that doesn't leave a whole lot of time for the writing. So she took a position with a small firm that didn't require those kind of outrageous hours. Now it didn't have the big career path in front of her to move up to be partner, but it was still a position where she got paid well, Now, much less than what she'd been paid at the big firm, but she did it very strategically so it would free up some of her time and emotional energy so she could devote it to growing her coaching business. Well, then in 2017, last year from January, First, until October 1st, she generated $100,000 in her sideline business of coaching. By the end of the year, it was 127,000. And then she structured a gradual phasing away from her traditional job and to be totally on her own of March of this year. So you can do that, you know, take a lesser position, Fewer hours, even if the pay is less, devote more time to your writing. And then if you're real strategic about your writing, you grow that to make up the gap in income and go beyond, then you can make a full transition. Very, very common, great setup. Now this comes from Chuck, who who titled this ambivalence about money. Boy, this is such a continuing theme. He says, I love your podcast, your books. I have this ambivalence about money. On the one hand, I'd love to be a millionaire have enough to buy a house or open a retreat center one day, continue to create music for the world, do good things with the money. On the other hand, I get this sentence. I feel as if the existence of the rich necessitates the existence of the poor. Like it's a zero sum game. Now think about that. a I mean, because that's what it's exactly what that implies. That implies that money is a fixed quantity. So it's like a pizza. So if you take a piece of that pizza, then there's less left for me and everybody else. Now, that's a very unrealistic view of how money works. Money doesn't work like that. It's not a fixed quantity. There's there's opportunity for everybody to have lots of it, if in fact they want to. And having money, when somebody has money, what it, it doesn't diminish money others have, it usually allows more money to flow through that person to those who have less. And when you think about it, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to help somebody else out as an example, if you don't have any money, but if you do have money, then it's easy to be generous. It's easy to pay rent for the widow down the street. It's easy to get a car for gal who just got out of prison you know it's easy to help the guy who had a health challenge but he's really good guy and just stuck in between opportunities only if you have money well chuck continues i'm sure my ambivalence is, is in no small part due to my parents constantly fighting about money screaming at each other tied into this i'm a musician a piano teacher living in houston texas but i seem to be unable to keep enough students to sustain an income I frequently feel like a failure because I'll seek out jobs just for the paycheck, however meager, and then quit them within weeks because I get very bored, or depressed with the work. I know my mission is to create beautiful music, connect people. In doing so, even with other people or their own emotions. Way goes on, and just more about this ambivalence about money. But well, let me let me just share with you a couple things how this is going to play out. If you feel Like the existence of the rich necessitates the existence of the poor, and thus there's a negative overtone to having money. Guess what? You won't have much. That feeling is going to become your reality. You'll struggle with money yourself. If you have this sense that in some way it's really kind of evil. Now, I grew up with that. I mean, I know of which I speak here because I grew up with that kind of theological mentality. Not that the love of money is the root of all evil, but really money itself is probably the root of all evil. I mean, we were pretty convinced that people who had money were probably taking advantage of other people. And the safest thing to do, the most godly position would be to have no money. There you really don't have any risk. And, and really, there's a lot of truth in that. You don't have to make those judgments about money if you don't have any, but you're also extremely limited in what you can do when you don't have any. I would encourage you, Chuck, to read the book, The Big Leap by Gay Hendricks. In there, he talks about a concept called the upper limit challenge, because we all struggle with this. You know, I brought into my adulthood, the messages that I had learned as a poor farm kid, about money. And so there's a sense of deserving. You know, when I, when I work with people who are in between jobs, they're going through a job search, they give themselves about a $10,000 window. So if somebody's been used to making $70,000, I find that they'll look for jobs that pay between sixty five dollars and seventy five. dollars So they got about a $10,000 window there. If there's a job opening that appears, it's exactly what they do. It validates their academic background and work experience, and it pays $130,000. Typically, they don't even apply. They somehow think, yeah, that's probably out of my range. So we give ourselves this kind of narrow boundaries of what we think we deserve. And we tend to stay right there. Now think about how this plays out. A lot of people in today's work environment they're working a job and you look for that 3 to 4% increase. So if you're making 70,000, you know this next year you're going to make 73. Well, that you can handle. That's a a small subtle change, and you can handle that. But what if you jump what what if you create a course? Let's just go back to some of the things we've been talking about here. So you create a course and the course is $300. And, um, golly, it really kind of strikes a nerve with people. It's something that people really value. And, you know, you, you aren't going to have the numbers that we would expect for a New York times bestselling book or anything. We're not talking about 250,000 people or anything like that. What if you had a thousand people, a thousand people, and that's all who bought your course What well, 300000 or three hundred dollars it's $300,000. Can you handle that influx of money or will you do something to sabotage it? That's evidenced by the upper limit challenge. You have to prepare mentally for money to come your way for you to be a good steward of money. If you aren't prepared mentally, you will sabotage the money when it shows up. And we see that evidenced with lottery winners, people who inherit money you know, and bought because they weren't prepared mentally. Their mindset was not prepared for the money. Now, which comes first? Well, if I won the lottery, I'd learn to live. No, it usually happens the other way around. If you have the mindset, I mean, if you, if you want to be a millionaire, start acting like a millionaire. I'm not saying that's a goal for everybody, but if you want to experiment with that, start acting like a millionaire spend time with them see the things they do hear the things they say read the books they read i mean check just check out how you can model that and it'll move you toward toward that dramatically well great question love that i love that issue uh, that being something that certainly i've had to work through and continue to work through and i still struggle with the upper limit challenge but uh what a delightful opportunity to recognize that wow as we have a mindset to become a better steward of more resources. Mo more tends to flow in our direction. Well, Barry says, over the last two years I've been working for a team-building company. I worked for this company as a contractor, but was invited to become a staff member when one of the owners had an accident in which he became a quadriplegic. Before the accident, I went to coaching with excellence, hoping to focus on training. Now I'm ready to continue with my plans. The quadriplegic owner is now an acting owner again and working as a consultant. I want to use the video and photos of the team building events that I helped design and do to create a curriculum with games for schools and churches. The owners are not interested in writing or marketing books. How do I go about approaching the two owners and asking for shared use? I'm not planning on quitting anytime soon, but looking to stretch myself further and prepare for something more. Golly, I really like that. I like the idea that you developed a training program there. You see that it has value and now you want to use that. But it's like, uh, do you develop that on their time when with their resources in their environment? How do you take it out on, on your own? Just ask. I mean, I would just ask, I wouldn't even try to propose some complicated sharing thing. I would just say, you know, look, this really has value. I, mean, I know you're not interested in kind of leveraging this, but I'd really like to just take this on as a little project and just develop it so I can share it with more people out there. I would just present it as such. It, it's not that complicated. There's not a lot of, you know, rights here, unless you're showing people that, um, where there's a question about the rights to show the people in the videos. I mean, that may be an issue more than ownership from the company is just the people that were in the videos and you may need to get some kind of a release from them to be shown in a course that you're then going to promote. Now it's funny. I, I had somebody just recently, one of my neighbors uh, talking to me about, he's going to go to one of Donald Miller's story brand events. And he said, golly, when I went on the story brand site, you know, one of the first person I saw, people I saw was Dan Miller. Well, I wasn't aware of that, but I went and looked and sure enough, you know, on the rolling video and promoting that company, there's a video of me when I was there. Well, they didn't ask me about that. I mean, it's just, it, it's not that complicated a deal. Sometimes we make these things more complicated than they need, than they need to be. But I just simply asked, tell the company what it is you want to do. And just simply ask. Well, here's a note from Roberta who says the most memorable time that I acted on dream was seven years ago. I had been on a one week mountain biking vacation with my husband in Scotland. We fell head over heels in love with the country and hated to leave when the week was over because I'm the primary breadwinner in our family. I asked my husband whether he'd be willing to relocate from our home in Oregon to Scotland if I could get a good job there. He said he'd consider it, but I don't think he realized this was a dream I intended to make real. Five months later, I was on my way to an interview at the University of Dundee and was offered a great position on the spot. Thanks to my pursuing that dream, we were able to enjoy two years in Scotland and a travel a bit in Europe before returning home to Oregon. I'm now in business for myself. Whenever I think I'm dreaming too big, I have this reminder that I can make big dreams come true. Well, I love those stories. Keep them coming in. Love hearing those stories of you who have taken action again and again and again. We're seeing that's the ingredient. It's not just knowledge. You know, a lot of people think, well, if I go to, you know, six conferences a year and read 30 books, you know, my life is going to change. Well, maybe not. Just increasing knowledge doesn't change your life. You have to move from knowledge to understanding and application. So the stories we go through here week after week, people have applied, they've taken massive action to change where they are. To be very, very confident, that's the real key. That's the magic sauce in this, is to move into a new season. I Bring a dream to life because you take action. You have to be willing to do that. Again, this time of year, wow, what a great time of year. Incidentally, we've got our new goal setting sheet up. You can go to 48days.com slash goals and you'll see the new 2019 version there of our goal setting worksheets uh, no cost of that. Just go there and download it. Sheila has graciously put that together. in a Very beautiful format. Again, just 48 days.com slash goals. Now I want to end with this piece from Gahil gabron because we're, we're talking about, can you just work for a paycheck? Can you just do work that is frustrating or you're disgruntled, but at least you get a paycheck. Well, it takes its toll. We've heard stories today and today's questions and stories here about people where it really has taken its toll. I mean, I'm working with a young cardiologist right now, 42 years old. He's been to the emergency room three times with unexplained challenges. He already recognizes recognize as a cardiologist, but things caused by nothing physically wrong at all. Simply stress. Michael Hyatt has a brand new book coming out. I just reviewed the book, Free to Focus. It's an awesome book. And he starts off telling about his own experience at thinking he had a heart attack. Went multiple times to the emergency room. And the doctors kept saying, your heart is fine. It's not that. And he realized it was some other things, just trying to take on too much that was causing the effect that seemed like a heart attack, even though his heart was perfectly fine. So this is from Cahill Gabran. And we'll end with this work is love made visible. And if you cannot work with love, but only with distaste, it is better that you should leave your work and sit at the gate of the temple and take alms of those who work with joy. For if you bake bread with indifference, you bake a bitter bread that feeds but half man's hunger. And if you grudge the crushing of the grapes, your grudge distills a poison in the wine. And if you sing, though, as angels, and love not the singing, you muffle man's ears to the voices of the day and the voices of the night. Well, that's a good stopping point. Work is love made visible. God, that's a strong statement. But if we go back to what we opened with, earlier here my challenge is are you adding love to the work you do now you know this may seem kind of touchy-feely and unrealistic yeah we just gotta you know be strong pull your shoulders back you know go off to the coal mine every day well there's there's certainly the responsibility to be providers and to use our talents well but it doesn't have to end there We can do that and be doing something that we absolutely love. Something where we infuse love into what we do. And I can't imagine doing work where the only compensation was a paycheck. Well, I know you can't either. Preaching to the choir here at this point. Well, hey, thanks for those of you who are involved in the 40 Days Eagles community. My goodness, if you haven't checked it out, please do just 48 days eagles.com. I mean, there's so many people coming in there and so many success stories coming out of there. I'm going to be more and more sharing success stories that are coming out of there, but people are excited about what they can do. And they're getting the uplift of having other people who are encouraging, who are cheerleaders who are saying, yeah, you can do it. Well, we're moving toward 2019. Great time to decide now. What action are you going to take? to give you the results that you want coming up next year. Hey, thanks for being involved in this community. Thanks for sharing with each other, sharing with me, keep those notes coming into me, at 48 dayscom But more than anything, thanks for being part of the believers where we know we can find or create work that is purposeful, meaningful, and profitable.